giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is DJ Patel, head of technology at Devoted Health. DJ, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I'm curious, how long have you been in Boston for? Today, so far, about six hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have team, Devoted Health has team here, but you're not usually based here. Yeah, so our teams are actually based in a distributed way. So okay. our largest footprint is here in Boston, out in Waltham in the watch factory. Mm-hmm. But we also have a large team out in Florida where the market is, where we're responsible for taking care of seniors. And we also have another much smaller footprint out in Silicon Valley near Palo Alto. But we also have a distributed team of people in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., New York, and Chicago. Where are you usually based? I'm wherever the action is needed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but three days a week, I've been out here in Boston. Mm-hmm. But I'll also be in the market as, as well as uh, where my family lives at, out in California. Okay. So you're no longer in D.C. <laughs> I am no longer in D.C., I may have been uh, asked to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just go there right now in terms of you were chief data scientist of the United States of America from 2015 to 2017. Do I have that right? That is correct. And you are no longer that. (laughs) I am no longer that. Does that position still exist at all? It does. It it does. Mm -hmm. And and from what I've heard from the current administration is that they do have a strong desire to fill it. Uh, you could say that they have some challenges filling a number of roles. Right. And so I'm sure you've told this story before, (laughs) but like, how did you come to be the chief data scientist of the United States? Yeah. um, Craigslist. (laughs) 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 In all uh, all seriousness, the first two chief technology officers, the CTO Mm -hmm. uh, that President Obama had put in place as part of the campaign pledge to really figure out how can we leverage technology in novel ways to advance every cause for American public. Those first two, first Anish Chopra and then Todd Park, most of their portfolio was heavily steered towards doing things with data. Mm-hmm. It was really about like, how do we open up data? How do we use data in novel ways to really think about what can actually happen? And that resulted in you know, a large number of data sets being opened up, data.gov being created, and so much more. Mm-hmm. And going forward to the third iteration, when Megan Smith became CTO, the realization was, hey, the CTO has to do a lot of other things. How do we make sure to preserve all of these data efforts? And that was a realization that this time it's actually ready to graduate. Mm-hmm. And we need a separate new role that's going to be really responsible for shepherding this. So with that was establishment of a mission. That mission was to responsibly unleash the power of data to benefit all Americans. And that person that's responsible for spearheading that and shaping that across the federal sector is a U.S. chief data scientist. But there are also more than 40 chief data officers or chief data scientists across the federal agencies, from Mm -hmm. Department of Transportation to National Institutes for Health to GSA to even the national security apparatus. There's data people in every single walk of life now in the federal government. And so we've seen that transformation take place in the person who in the team who's responsible for shepherding that at the presidential level and for the federal government is the chief data scientist. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a very complex system 
the you know mm-hmm. the United States government. It's huge. What are some things that people from your vantage point on the inside would be surprised that the government is doing well? Mm-hmm. Well, Michael Lewis most recently just wrote a, a book about this mm-hmm. that talks about all the things that you don't really realize that the government actually does. And there's, in fact, one of the things that he jokes about is that there is this drinking game where people say, hey, does this agency do this or not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and if you're wrong, you have to drink. And the shocking thing is how much the government actually does. Mm-hmm. Take the reason for the FDA, you know, something that we love to say like, oh, the FDA is not moving fast enough, this, that, all these type things. What does the FDA actually do? And why was it created? Well, the reason, part of the reason it was created is because Somebody came up with this basically this magic drink that they said will make you better. And if you take it, you know, good things will happen. So a bunch of people did and a number of people died. Turned out it wasn't really against a lot of poison people. Mm -hmm. And who's going to be responsible for making those kind of claims, you know, real and and making Mm -hmm. sure that they, they actually can deliver or they're safe? That's the FDA. And that's why it was created. And think about this compared to any other country. Lots of other countries, when you take any type of pharmaceutical, blue pill, red pill, white pill, whatever it is, you don't question ever, like, could it be counterfeit? Mm-hmm. Might it be tampered with? We don't even think about that. So when the medicine isn't working, we call the doctor and we say, hey, I'm still not feeling good. We don't ever say, I'm not sure you gave me real stuff. Mm-hmm. That's because of the FDA. Mm-hmm. So you have those deep things. People talk all the time, and this famous one congressperson actually said, hey, why do we need the National Weather Service when we have the Weather Channel? And if everyone forgets, like, who's responsible for the satellites? Who's responsible for the supercomputers that produce those forecasts? It's the National Weather Service. Mm -hmm. So we actually live on this foundation that we equally contribute to at the federal level through our taxpayer dollars that creates this system of services and protections that we all massively depend on in, in ways that we don't always appreciate. So where do you think the government has to go like in the short term to continue to be you know serving the needs of the people mm-hmm. when it comes to technology and data? Well the first thing that the federal government should be doing is thinking about what does it mean to responsibly use technology. And and, and the version we say of this is how do we make sure that technology works for us rather than mm-hmm. against us? Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to say we have all this amazing technology, you know, we've got this phone and all this cool stuff. But think about the population that doesn't have any access to technology. Right. You know, the largest jail in the United States, single-site jail, is in Chicago, just, you know, a short drive from downtown Chicago, uh, Mm -hmm. Cook County Jail. It's 93 acres of jail. Roughly one-third of the inmates have mental health issues. You know, cell phones don't work for miles. You know, children or kids who are near there are being penalized because of the zip code they were born into, which just happens to be a jail. So we don't have the technology revolution for them. You know, we have all these questions of healthcare inequality where people are talking about AI massively changing the landscape for healthcare. We have people who don't even have the basic access to dental care and they have to wait hours for free clinics. So how do we have technology help all of those people? And there are very big technology efforts that can help that from mm-hmm. access to just broadband connectivity to figuring out how do services get rendered more quickly. And we've seen what happens when they go wrong, healthcare.gov. Mm-hmm. We've also seen what happens when it goes right and you have technologists in there helping. And so the number one thing is you have to have technologists and scientists at the table, mm-hmm. not sort of just as advisors, 
at the table making, the decision making process. And so what the president should do is make sure not only is there a chief science officer, which is basically the science advisor, Mm -hmm. the Office of Science Technology Policy, but the president needs to implement a CTO, a chief data scientist, and build out that team to ask how are we going to make this these these policies real, mm-hmm. and then we should put a number of things on the table that this administration have done, which are harmful, which is questions around immigration, attacks on people who are using technology in novel ways to help people, and one of the big things that's that's in question is how do we ensure that the technology is not going to be weaponized against the American public, mm-hmm. and those kind of things have to have an intellectual conversation and the right congressional oversight to be able to bring that right type of talent in. You said we need technologists at the table, Mm -hmm. not just as advisors. Do you think that Congress and the people making these decisions have the knowledge or the people at the table to help them make these decisions? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that there's area for improvement there? They don't have the right people at the table, Mm -hmm. quintessentially so. The reason I can say that so concretely is because many of us who came in to serve this time we're the people who are at the table, right. and we're not there now. There right. are still very notable groups that are there. For example, there's the U.S. Digital Service, mm-hmm. and the Department of Defense has a digital service as well, and they are doing excellent jobs advising. But they're not the table for key policy decisions. So, for example, when there's a question around how are we going to improve criminal justice or address issues around opioids. Right now, it's a bunch of people who have great expertise in policy, mm-hmm. but no expertise in healthcare. The programs that we set up in criminal justice system, they cover 94 million Americans, and they save millions of dollars. Because what happened is we had the policy people, the technologists collectively working together and figuring out how to mm-hmm. actually make that real. Mm-hmm. How do you successfully do this in a world where every four or eight years, everything's going to turn over, mm-hmm. like that it's so tied to elected officials? Well, the first part is many of these roles have to become career staff roles. Mm-hmm. And these of now over 40 chief data scientists, chief data officers, those roles are career level. Okay. And so they are not people who just turn over on the natural cycle mm-hmm. of uh, the political landscape. They're there for life. The other part that's there is there's been phenomenal people who've always been there in the government. And one Mm. of the things that people don't always realize is we didn't come up with all these great, brilliant insights. What we actually did is we kind of looked across the federal agencies and said, who's got great ideas? Mm -hmm. And what we call scout and then scale. So we took those ideas and figured out how to lift them up. Many of those ideas came from local cities. They didn't come from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And and to be very crisp, I'll give you an example. Miami-Dade, Florida figured out that if they train all their first responders, police officers, 911, in crisis intervention and figuring out that when the officer responds and they could figure out like, hey, if this person is in distress from mental health issue, drugs, instead of taking them to jail, get them to the right treatment center. Mm -hmm. Cost them a million and a half to train everybody. In the first year alone, they saved more than $10 million from diverting people to the right care. Mm-hmm. But it was so effective, they closed a full jail. Wow. A couple of years later, they closed another jail. Mm-hmm. So those type of problems, and by the way, those dollars, those are the dollars that get sucked out of the system from paying another teacher or a park and right. go to jail. Right. So those ideas, like how do you scale that? That's where the federal government comes in. Mm-hmm. So you hadn't worked in government before. 
Oh, right. I had. Actually. Oh, you had. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I so, served under President Bush as well oh, after okay. 9-11. Oh, okay. Uh, and so my focus there was to really figure out how do we use data and technology to understand threats against the United States. Okay. Remember, this was a time when it was after 9-11, it was find the signal in the noise. We mm -hmm. saw the cell operating if you kind of put all the pieces together, but the data was so fragmented. And many of the people who were on the front end wave of using data in novel ways, what we're now calling data science, many of them all came from the national security environment where we had developed technologies, built up our ideas, and then said, hey, we can apply these in many other places to build products and build these ideas that are going to be able to serve broad consumers. Mm -hmm. When you first got into government and working for the government, what did you personally learn mm -hmm. that maybe you weren't expecting to learn? The first things I learned and reminded again is how hardworking mm -hmm. the majority of public servants are. They are jobs that just take, 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 and they put in unbelievable amounts of time and energy. And sometimes those are very thankless jobs. Mm -hmm. And there's an incredible amount of innovation and amount of good that people are doing that just never gets to be talked about. Mm -hmm. I got my chance in the first time I was in public service, I was with the Department of Defense, and getting to spend time with the men and women who serve the country and serve on the front lines changed my worldview phenomenally. And, and I grew up around many military people, and I was fortunate enough to, to know mm -hmm. them growing up, but it changed them when they're your friends and seeing what they're going through and how can you do more. It was one of the big reasons that so much of LinkedIn's products when I moved into public sector were focused on how do we put and enable veterans back to work. Yeah, so you are at Devoted Health now. Yes. Which is a healthcare company. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe what exactly Devoted Health is doing? Well, so the first premise is the thing we learned from government is it starts with mission mm -hmm. and we establishing the mission. And the mission statement for Devoted Health is to build a healthcare plan that takes care of every member like they were our, our own family. Mm -hmm. And what's behind that? You know, oftentimes a health issue happens and we have to find someone who's a physician or works at a hospital or, and ask them all these questions about like, hey, who's good? Who's the right doctor? I don't understand these things the doctor's saying, or I got all these, these medicines. Like, well, how do I think about them? We start putting into our favorite search engine these questions. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't have somebody who shepherds us through the system with that same level of responsibility. So what would it look like to take care of people? And so we started with that premise and realized the best way to do this is to start with America's seniors. Because mm -hmm. every 10 seconds, there's going to be a new senior, roughly 10,000 a year. And one of the things that's, well, that happens in that process is who's going to take care of them? Mm -hmm. And how do we see that change? And if we can figure out that care model, that should work for everybody. And so we realized the first thing that you have to be is you actually have to be a payer, an insurance provider. Mm -hmm. You have to be that. The second part is that's necessary but not sufficient. You have to have phenomenal primary care physicians, the physicians who are going to act as your quarterback, your theater director, whichever analogy you want, to really be in charge of your health care and really focus on that. It also has to be value-based, which means the insurance company and the primary care provider have to be 100% on the hook for your health care. Mm -hmm. And to put that in perspective, it means that if we were taking care of you and something goes wrong and it's going to cost a lot of money, we're responsible for all of it. If we do a great job, we get a percent of the savings. 
And a great job doesn't just mean economics. It means better healthcare measured outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we're responsible for your wellness. So you've got to have that. You've also got to have a great technology stack because in this day and age, how do you train somebody who's coming out of college or new in the workforce to use a fax machine? Right. <laughs> like I just try to explain this to my kids and they're in middle school and they were just like, they were like, what are these noises? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like why, why wouldn't you email this? Why doesn't, don't you guys have APIs? This is like a nine-year-old who's calling this out. Mm-hmm. Yet our system works in this antiquated way. So you have to have a technology version that allows rapid data to move around to provide the right care at the right time. And then through all of this, you can't just have healthcare stay in the clinic. It has to extend into the home. So when you're released from a hospital, who gets to you in the home to figure out what medications that you have as all these medications and say, this one, not this one, but a little bit of this one. Don't mix them too much because that's going to put you back in the hospital. Who's going to be responsible for your stabilization? And we realize we have to build all of that collectively if we Mm want to be on this mission to really build that kind of healthcare system that we're talking about. Yeah, I want to dig into that more. But before we do, I want to ask... Why you personally, why Devoted Health? Why join and why do this? Mm -hmm. One of the most powerful conversations I had in the White House was when I was having my first time talking to President Obama about the problems I should work on. Mm -hmm. And he was very adamant I work on healthcare and in part leading both the Precision Medicine Initiative to really help enter an age of truly tailored medical treatments at the genomic layer and the Cancer Moonshot. And mm-hmm. and in that process, one of the things that I asked him about was, you know, I have all this expertise in national security. Don't you want me working more on those things than these types of things? And he said, you actually, actually, I don't want you working on the national security things because people like you always work on those problems. <laughs> we don't have people like you who are working on these problems. Mm-hmm. Let's bring your innovation and the things that you've done over there in national security. Let's get them to work for all of us. I thought it was an incredibly insightful observation because most of us don't know how to get into healthcare. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's nomenclature, there's words. We also haven't figured out the pathways. The other part was the people I got to meet in the process of working in the administration and watching their delta in their healthcare and having to hear their stories of denial of care or just getting lost in the system or thrashing around and hearing how much they went through it, somebody has to make the change. Mm-hmm. And if not us, who? And, and so what we literally did is we, we got the team together of people we had worked on with these ideas with, many of which have worked on it for most of their lives, and Todd Park and Ed Park. Todd was former US CTO. Ed was founder also with him of Athena Health. Right. And so many more. And we said, what happens if we want to see this change happen? What are the necessary steps to actually prove what we talk about? Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we came up with the genesis of this. And we're not on a long arc. We don't have like a growth hacker mindset of just saying like, let's go get a whole bunch of people enrolled and see what happens. Mm-hmm. We actually want to get the care coordination right. We want to get the right type of technologists in here who are going to build the system with us to figure out how to build superpowers for not just a doctor, but the whole care team, the nurse, the social worker, the other family members who are responsible for care. Mm -hmm. It's unsexy work. But when you make that change happen, 
that's where the disproportionate leverage actually takes place. So you alluded to how big of a problem this actually is to solve. How did you arrive at the first area to solve? And how do you break down, how do you think about breaking down, you know, we're eventually going to do huge things, but here's the small thing we're going to do first. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that? Yeah. So it turns out it's both not easy and easy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and the reason it's not easy is because you have to do all of it. Mm -hmm. You don't get to do just one piece of it. You have to do all of the pieces. Think of it like, there's two analogies that somebody has said, told me is, I, you know, one is think about building a bank. You build a bank, you don't get to just say, hey, I only take checks. Right. You also have to have an ATM. You have to do certified checks. You have to be able to do loans. You have mm-hmm. to do all these things that are 101 for banking. The other thing that's there is building a healthcare startup oftentimes is you don't get to prototype. You don't get to A-B test because there's real lives online. So mm-hmm. you're building a skyscraper on its side, and then one day you press a button, and then you stand it all up. So that means you have to go very broad, but also have a deep understanding how to interact with all the different forms of healthcare system. And so the way we broke it apart is basically what are all the necessary checkboxes that are required to do what we often refer to in our nomenclature as C0, the core work that must happen. But as we're building out those systems, how do we make sure that the technology that sits underneath it can do that much more, Mm -hmm. has all the hooks to be able to move data around very efficiently, sitting completely in the cloud, having the ability to do lots of error handling. So for example, if a claim happens, or some uh, suppose a member of ours ends up in the hospital, Well, the hospital typically says, hey, we'd like a pre-authorization to treat this person. Well, because of our system and the way we've built it, we have all those data hooks in there, like in modern architecture. And so then we can automatically fire a response to the primary care physician and say, did you know your member or your your patient is now in the hospital? Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to do something there. Mm -hmm. What are those things now? How can we coordinate care? That's easy in our system. That's really hard for everyone else. Mm -hmm. We can also change our system in hours. Everyone else takes months, if not years. So the goal here was to say, how do you do this base, but but build the foundation from a modern foundation and then allow to do more? Mm -hmm. And sitting on top of all that, we are fortunate. We have many of the people who have done some of the greatest innovations in data science, as well as different parts of technology. You mentioned you have to become a payer. So are there any parts where you said, you know, let's not reinvent the wheel here. There's this off-the-shelf solution that is going to get us for where we need to be today, or are you building everything from scratch? We actually have partnered, and Mm -hmm. and there are a number of pieces where you have to actually work with others to make that okay. And there's a number of reasons from compliance to all sorts of other things. The places where we actually are starting to innovate the most is on the claim side. Mm-hmm. And so one of our big bets on it for engineering is actually how do you build an awesome claims processor? Not just because you can pay people faster, but you actually have the data that's intrinsic to the system that you're allowed you allows you to do those more innovative things like saying, "Hey, you've, you know, your patients in the hospital or hey, these drugs that are being issued, there's a conflict that actually mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. Who should know about that? The care team." Because mm-hmm. maybe they got the prescriptions from two different entities and they just weren't necessarily and well-coordinated. So how do we throw that flag, if you will? 
On the areas where you have to partner with people and, you know, for compliance and everything, is that frustrating at times that there's mm -hmm. often barriers to actually just fixing the problem that you mm -hmm. want to fix? Many times people get frustrated with compliance. Mm -hmm. What I think of about compliance is let's ask the question of how we got here to this rule. Mm -hmm. Where did this happen? Usually compliance didn't just come up with sort of mad libs. That, and it's like, well, and we'll have this rule with this condition and this thing. It, it's, it's actually rarely that. There's a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And if you start at the very basics of this is with senior care and particularly in Medicare, what has happened is we have a population that has paid into it. We're all paying into this. And so the people who are the administrators of the program have the responsibility that these funds are well used mm -hmm. for the healthcare, that there's no fraud, that they're, they're, like people are good using them in the ways that have been mandated, all of those things. And our job is to make sure that we are going with that. And so we actually, one of our tenants as a company is to be literally what we quote is, be a paragon of hyper-compliance. We are doing that because of the rules have that. And if those rules are silly or don't make sense, our job is to go back to CMS and talk to them and explain how that paradigm doesn't work and allow them to actually innovate. And the good thing is many cases, CMS actually wants to innovate. They need the feedback on how to do it. Mm -hmm. And it, maybe it's because we come from the government side, we can see that and appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But our focus is how do we actually think of the government as a partner? We don't think of it as an opposition. The thing that is really the opponent for us is legacy systems mm -hmm. and just technology that's really, I mean, Old is being kind. <laughs> I mean, it's just bad choices. What's an example of that that you've you've hit? So, for example, many of these configuration files and the way they actually work, oftentimes, and you want to make a change, it almost feels like back in the day of the Y two K buck, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and you know people need a small change, and people are like, oh, well, we hard coded that, and you know, right. like why? Like, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you just have a logic layer to do these things? And you realize, well, somebody built it super cheaply. They've mm -hmm. sold it a lot. No one's asked the hard questions. And people have just accepted that as a status quo. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be that way. What's involved in expanding? And, you know, you mentioned you're just in Florida mm -hmm. right now. It's actually just in a few... Eight counties. Eight mm -hmm. counties in, in Florida. So what's involved in expanding? What, what kind of barriers do you hit? regulation-wise or compliance-wise as you expand? So the first thing that we have to do is you have to have great primary care physicians. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. And so people will often think that we're in Florida because of the demographics. Mm -hmm. And it's actually because there are phenomenal primary care physicians in these eight counties. And you can work with them and be partners with them to provide this even greater quality of care. So it's not just, uh, you know, you, you really want physicians to be partners. It's not your typical HMO. Like you're giving them new tools, you're giving them new practices. Well, well, yes. So in fact, one of the things that we're testing and we want to work together with our physicians on is what type of data feeds do you need back to do that kind of high quality care? Two of the examples that have been there right off the bat is one is they want to know when their hospital's been admitted to to the ER or any hospital, mm -hmm. the hospitalization. They also want to know more information about drug discovery or uh, the drugs that have been possibly that are in conflict with each other. So what do you do for the electronic medical records mm -hmm. software that the physicians use? Yeah. 
So the medical records that the physicians use, they all have their own different right. choices because you know, hospital one, hospital two, mm-hmm. doctor's office three, they, they all can have different forms. I got to spend a significant amount of my time on healthcare interoperability. Mm-hmm. So how does data move from one EHR to another? Ed Park, Todd, obviously with Athena Health right. here in, in Boston and many of the team have spent their <laughs> careers building electronic medical records. So I have a deep understanding of the different parts. The thing that is there, and when you're as a payer, you actually get a different set of data that you want the different EHRs to actually basically be able to start to have so it can be more actionable. Mm -hmm. So there's N different pieces of the data puzzle, if you will, that Mm -hmm. need to get put together to actually do proper care coordination. So the electronic medical record is just one part of it. But there's all these other pieces that need to be brought together. And our view is that as a payer, you get a disproportionate lens into those those Mm -hmm. pieces. Do you see it as part of your devoted health's responsibility to fix all of that or to to be working with all of those and different pieces? Well, we don't think we need to build another EHR. (laughs) Uh (laughs) There's there's plenty of uh, candidates out there already. What I do think that is is needed is the better movement of all the data and these Mm -hmm. different pieces. And as a pair, we have a unique ability to start to do that. Not just because you get to do it and say, well, we won't pay you if this happens. It's actually because you have the ability to work in a more cohesive way with the different pieces of the care team to say, what if we share this? Could we actually provide better care? How can we move this data all together? Mm -hmm. And you kind of become the nexus or the hub of the data movement in many Mm -hmm. ways. Do physicians want to sign up to be a partner just because it's another insurance and they need to take it? Or Mm -hmm. do they sign it because they truly think it's better and want to be part of something better? Well, this is a great example of actually how we use data and technology in a Mm -hmm. very different way. So when you look on the back of your insurance card, it says in-network and out-of-network. And that in-network is typically a set of contracts that the insurance company has with all the people, all the physicians and the different specialists and different groups. Those contracts are usually determined by financial means. Mm -hmm. Like what's a good contract? Does it pay out well? And if you're out-of-network, you typically have to pay a different rate. In our model, in building the network, we built our networks from scratch. Some people buy them, some people rent them, which have really poor, unfortunate consequences. We built ours from scratch as a combination of people who are experts in those markets, as well as a bunch of data and data science using open data and quality scores. Our version of this was how do we moneyball the building of a great quality Mm -hmm. network? And when you put that together, you're able to say, hey, these are actually the top physicians that are going to deliver the quality care. Here's the great primary care physicians who actually can navigate this. Here are uh, primary care physicians who, with a little bit of technology or a little bit of work, are going to become great primary care physicians, and we're going to get them on a path to upgrade them. And so we are quite selective at who our primary care physicians are to be in the network and not in the network. Mm -hmm. And then how are patients finding devoted health and coming to the network? Right now, the way patients are uh, find us is this is what is often referred to as the enrollment period, uh, mm-hmm. um, the active enrollment period, AEP. And this is a time period where people have the opportunity to change or, or evaluate. And so there's a combination of advertising that is very much in the traditional sense, but more so is the community events. 
And so there's, we have been spending a lot of time with seniors in the development of our plan to actually understand what is going to be the optimal places for them. It's, a, it's, it's like a design story. It's mm-hmm. a user research problem of spending time, where are things broken? What would they want to have? Spending time with the primary care physician groups and others about what do the physicians need? Really listening to them and putting that together. So now when we go out and we talk to those, these different groups, you know, whether it's a social gathering or a, um, some kind of seminar where they're trying to get an understanding of how the policies have changed over the last year, we're able to really talk to them about why we have start, not only started Devoted Health, but what we should expect for them. And one of those expectations is when you call, we encourage you to call. We're not going to put you on hold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not our goal. We don't want to treat you like a number. We want to make sure you get a fast response. And not only is there a customer service representative, we ha- we're going to have a guide who shepherds you through the healthcare system. Somebody who's going to be that person that says, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And that kind of family member that you would want, uh, essentially. And so that's where people have really been responding in an incredibly positive way. Mm -hmm. Can physicians recommend a health insurance plan? They cannot. Right. There's a couple interesting things in there. Because of the regulatory nature, and, and in a good way, in my opinion, you know, physicians can't say, hey, you should just go do this one. Mm-hmm. But also there's a number of other things. You cannot use data in any way to say, oh, we want only these people. Mm-hmm. You can't do that, which is good because and something right. I've been spending a lot of my spare hours on has been this, the area of how do we actually make data and ethics more inclusive. And so one of the things that we like is that our program and our product, it has to work for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's not like some concierge program only for elites. It's It's got to work for people below the poverty line equally as much. And, and we're proud of that. Mm-hmm. That's something that we're very proud of is that this is a healthcare plan for everybody. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the Paul Graham essay about doing things that don't scale? Mm-hmm. If you're ultimately trying to create a program that works for everybody, but you also are starting up, do you do things that don't scale? Yeah. So here's the way I would say it is Mm -hmm. the prime directive of Devoted Health is that when you're not sure what to do, and this is literally the way we say it to everybody, is close your eyes, think of somebody you love, mom, dad, brother, sister, uncle, what would you do for them? Make that decision. Mm Mm-hmm. Over the long arc, these kind of decisions of what you do right, that actually becomes scalable. Doing right is scalable. Mm-hmm. And our job on the technology team is how do we actually build that in a scalable way? And our force multiplying techniques to actually make that scale are both system engineering and data science. Mm-hmm. And we believe that if we bring those together, we can figure out how to make those elements scalable. Mm-hmm. And I'll be very specific. One of the ones that is there is when you call and a member needs help, how long do they have? People look at it, call center wait time or, mm-hmm. or like how much load is on the, the, the reps, how fast are they answering? Our model is, are we getting you to the right care? It's about getting you to the right care. And that if we're on the hook for your entire cost of care and we mm-hmm. do the right job, it works itself out. Mm-hmm. If we have to talk to you every day, that's okay. Because we're going to be stabilizing you. We're going to have better outcomes. We'll have better right. economics altogether. Mm-hmm. Everyone is going to win in that process. Mm-hmm. So if Devoted Health is successful, how do things change on a long-term mm-hmm. horizon, 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Like, mm-hmm. what happens? 
I think it's likely that it's going to take more than 10 years, maybe mm-hmm. 20 years, just based on scale and those ideas. So what does success look like? The first is, this is a plan that I would want to be in myself. I would want my wife to be in. I would want my friends to be in. It's definitely already a plan that I would want my parents in. Mm-hmm. And many of the employees at Devoted whose parents live in those eight markets are enrolled in the plan. So when they call. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Mom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's a something, something special about when we say treat every member like they were family. You're mm-hmm. like, if you don't do a good job, you're, right. you're going to hear from Margaret. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's something very powerful. Mm-hmm. So that's the first part. The second part is I think we're start about to see a, a seismic shift in the view of what healthcare should look like. And what's the expectation of that? And we should be on that front end of that. People talk about, you know, how easy it is to do e-commerce these days. Mm-hmm. And, and like, you know, I just put my order and it shows up. I don't have to worry about it. It doesn't fit. I return it. Like, it's easy. Healthcare is hard. Yep. Healthcare is way too hard than it should be. It's not only is it fragmented, but you try to find something for renal disease. People are like, well, what's renal disease? Do I put in kidney doctor? Do I put in renal doctors? Like, what's, it's nephrologist. Who's hmm. supposed to know that? Right. We got to make it easier to understand, like, how to connect the coordination of care. Mm-hmm. And, and we did this, by the way. We put a team together with Vice President Biden to look at what is the overall end-to-end user experience look like from the moment somebody hears a diagnosis of cancer. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a fascinating, deeply troubling insight because you, you hear the word cancer and your mind goes blank. And by the time you finally recover, what's the first thing somebody does? They sit in their car, they hear that, like they, mm-hmm. they open their mobile phone if they have one and they put it into Google or a search engine mm-hmm. and they start getting information. That's how we get our information. And then they try to figure out like, what's this next result? And yet they've been bombarded with all these words like oncologist and geoblastoma or other things. And you look at each step, even across the foundations that are doing amazing work, there's no bridging function. Mm -hmm. There's no coordination of care. And so the places where you just sort of fall into gaps constantly is, is terrifying. So what if it looked like that was actually like a good solid bridge that you could stand on every step of that journey? Because it's so difficult. And if you don't have people who are out there advocating for you, you're at its fundamental disadvantage to start. And you don't have to be. That That's the thing. We don't mm-hmm. have, the system doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be heartless. It, it can be incredibly caring. And, and it's one of the reasons why I think that we're not going to see things like AI replace a physician and other things because right. we need that care coordination. We need that human. We need the nurse who's going to give you a hug to treatment. That's mm-hmm. that's what we want. Mm-hmm. And it seems like with Devoted Health, you're trying to create that as well, that bridge. That's the bridge we want. Mm-hmm. One where I can feel that somebody I love's care is really in the right hands. And I just know, like, great you mm-hmm. know what, please take care of them. Mm-hmm. And I just know that it's all going to be done. And I'm not having to be adversarial testing them all the time. Like they're, they're partners. Mm-hmm. And, and so like we're working together the whole way. Mm-hmm. What are the blockers to bringing devoted health to everyone except time? 
other blockers or you say, oh, we can't, we like literally can't access this segment because. Sure. Of- well, the first part of this is financial and mm-hmm. that's why we raised $300 million, which seems like a crazy amount, but it's actually really the amount that's needed to start scaling this and, mm-hmm. and, and building a technology team to just go, go, go and all the other services to make this real. The second part is we have to really get the care coordination right. So we can't just say, hey, we're going to open up across the United States and have a growth play. Right. We have to figure out how do we actually make all these pieces work and then scale. You have to crawl, then walk, and then run. And we need to get it right. The other portion is this game expansion rate is county by county in most places. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have the right primary care capacity. You have to have the other specialists. You have to have the plan. You have to have the coordination. And you have to have partnerships with the hospitals. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there are a number of markets where the hospitals, they have a much more adversarial approach than a well-coordinated approach. And so the markets where they have that and they want to partner, you're able to do remarkable things. In the places where it's not, fortunately, those are also places where you don't see the great coordination of care. How do you fix that problem? Well, the good news is I think as you show the model and as it works and Mm -hmm. everyone wins, including Mm -hmm. the hospitals, including the physicians, the specialists, everybody wins. The more you see that, everyone realizes like you're not a threat. Mm -hmm. And this model doesn't have to be, it's it's not, you know, zero sum game. Mm -hmm. In fact, we welcome other entrants to this space. Like we're thrilled that there's so many other Medicare Advantage players and people trying innovation. This isn't a problem that's going to just be solved by devoted health. Mm-hmm. This is going to be solved by a broader community. It reminds me of the early days of social networking. LinkedIn wasn't going to just figure it out. Facebook wasn't going to figure it out. We had to share technologies and ideas. We shared the whole ideas of building out Hadoop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we collectively with Yahoo and others figured out how to make this even better so it could power all these systems. A similar version of that has to happen in healthcare technology right now is we need to stop being in our own little isolated shops, get together, share what's working, what's not working, and try to say, how can we empower this where you go north, I go south, you go, somebody goes mm-hmm. east, someone else goes west. Let's go figure it out. Because this is almost 20% of the United States GDP at this point. Mm-hmm. So we got to get on this problem before it wrecks or drives a country off a, fi- a financial cliff. Mm-hmm. How do you balance... Devoted Health has, you mentioned the investment. So it's an investment-backed company. Yeah. How do you balance creating something that is both created by investment and it's not a nonprofit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with the needs to keep costs down mm-hmm. and the altruistic nature of what you're trying to do, how, how do you either personally balance that or as a business balance mm-hmm. that? Well, the good news in the way we've structured the company is all of that is actually aligned. Mm-hmm. The investors who have invested also deeply buy into that that vision and mission. And that's why we were able to raise the capital that we have because people have seen, oh, this all lines up. And the better quality of care you give, the better savings and, and, and it's important, the and outcomes right. are better, not the same, better. And so all of that actually starts to line up. And it, it's shocking that that you can actually do it that way. You don't have to limit care. If you provide better care, that's that's even better. And then, you know, there's another part is the structure of the company is, is that the founders have control to actually make sure to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so we have structured this for a long arc vision. It is not, and this is why I think it's, we've been able to attract the talent we have is 
People want mission. People want to see the change directly impacted that they code up or they try to implement in, in somebody's life. And then third, they want to know that we're in it for the long haul and that we're not here to make a giant, some kind of flip and, mm-hmm. and sell out. That is not our goal. Our, our goal is long-time institutional change. And we believe the economics will come with that too. And that you, you don't have to have it as one or the other. Well, you've obviously moved quickly, but you have a long road ahead of you. <laughs> How do you balance like the big task with staying sustainable? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in this for the long haul, what do you do to make sure that you keep the energy up over the long haul? Mm-hmm. As an individual or as a team? Uh, both, actually. Mm-hmm. So as, as an individual, one of the things that I think is the most important thing and uh, is I tell people in startups who are going to take startups is you actually have to be in great shape, mm-hmm. physical shape and emotional shape. It's exceptionally taxing, but it's also deeply rewarding. And so I have found that if you're not taking care of yourself, both emotionally and physically, it's going to just slowly sap you da- and run mm-hmm. you down. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's deeply important. As a team, I think that one of the most important things is you have to, one, keep perspective because you can get stuck in the weeds of mm-hmm. you know, a file format just right. not working out or why aren't the faxes talking? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're just kind of looking at it like, why are we even using faxes? Mm-hmm. But the broader perspective of like, who are we fighting for? And what are we trying to do? I think it's very easy to get cynical about things mm-hmm. uh, when you're in the thick of the fight and things aren't working. And you have to remember your job is to fight cynicism every day. And you're fighting that cynicism to build a system with that mission. And remembering that the mission is to build a healthcare system that is there to take care of every member like their family. Mm-hmm. And when you do that and you have that strong mission, a lot of stuff actually goes away. And part of that is savoring the journey. I tell people all the time, whether it was LinkedIn or Relate IQ or any of the other companies I've been involved in, there was moments that were all terrible. Yep. <laughs> but in retrospect, you look at them and go, wow, like the amount we were able to do, the amount we learned, and it's something that's so precious. And to have that shot again with the team that we have and the people who are invested in this mission, that to me is, is the dream. Mm-hmm. It's why it's so important to kind of take the long view on these things. Well, DJ, I wish you and the entire team at Devoted Health success in this very important (laughs) endeavor. Um, If people want to find out more or um, uh, follow along with you, where's the best places that they can do that? Yeah. So I'll give you three. So um, one is if you go to devoted.com on the upper bar on the upper right, there's a about us section and there's all the careers and information about the team. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at at D-P-A-T-I-L, D-P-A-T-I-L. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, and you can follow me, and I post there everything about Devoted as well as all our work on ethics and data overall. Wonderful. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm, and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.